This episode of The Ship Show is sponsored by PagerDuty. PagerDuty eliminates the noise, chaos, and manual processes across the entire incident lifecycle. PagerDuty helps you see by giving you visibility across your entire stack, act so you can get the right person or team for each problem, resolve the issue to fix problems before your customers even notice, analyze the spot trends in the incidents to understand the stress on both your teams and your systems, and prevent incidents by making proactive fixes to reach your organization's uptime goals. PagerDuty is trusted by companies like Etsy, Nike, and GitHub. Shipshow listeners can start their own special free 30-day trial by going to www.pagerduty.com slash theshipshow. To ship, of course. It's time again for Build Engineering DevOps, Release Management, and Everything Between. It's the Ship Show. I'm your host, Paul Reed, Sober Build Eng on Twitter and at SoberBuildEngineer.com. Who's with me for episode 46? This is Sasha at Sasha underscore D on Twitter. This is Seth at Plus on Twitter. This is Yusuf at Build Scientist on Twitter. How is everyone doing? Good. Good. It's oh. the beginning of August. I, you have a new adventure, Yusuf. I do, yes. I, I Tell started, us about your adventure. I, I started a new job. Uh, I'm working at uh, ServiceNow. As Congratulations. A, thank you. As a, as a QE developer. So So you're, what happened to the DevOps? What's a QE? Quality engineering. Did you start hating on the DevOps? No, I'm, I'm still Wait, you mean DevOps-y. Yusuf's not a DevOps anymore? <laughs> No, I'm still, you know, DevOpsy. I mean, it's a cultural thing. You know, I still practice DevOps, I guess. Yeah. Well, so just, I'm doing development now, so. Well, this will be good because, like, quality assurance and quality in general, I mean, we've talked about it on the show, but that's the part that you don't hear DevOps talk a lot about beyond you should have unit tests and stuff like that. So you should have some good fodder for future episodes. Oh, yeah. Looking forward to it. But we'll miss you at the secret DevOps parties where we learn the new handshake for the month. No, I'm still going to crash. It's the, <laughs> it's the DevOps Arati party. <laughs> oh, God. I will tell you guys more about that later. You have no idea. <laughs> Secret track of the MP3. Anyway, yes. How are, how are you, Paul? How's, uh... I, I'm very tired. I've been... Oh, is that why you sound drunk? Yeah, I mean, I'm totally not drunk. I'm just very tired. Last week was Agile. Spoke at Agile. Got to see Cheslock. Hang out with him. Nathan, Matt Stratton, uh, Karthik, and Ernest from Austin. DevOps days. Got to see them, got to see Gene Kim, hang out with him. So it was jam-packed. There was lots of drinking on demand and then retrospectives in the morning about the evening prior. But it was good. It was good. They had a whole DevOps track. In fact, uh, Andrew Schaefer and Dominic DeGrandis were the track chairs. And it was really fascinating because the Agile people, I mean, they've been around for a long time. They've been talking about a lot of the same things we talk about, but they, they look at it from a slightly different angle than uh, we do in DevOps. So it was actually really good. That's actually a good segue into our episode topic tonight because um, I was able to interview Kevin Bear uh, and Jay Bloom from Praxis Flow on DevOps and the applicability of DevOps and this misnomer of DevOps team. We kind of talk about everything. In fact, uh, Kevin had a really good quote in his presentation that I tweeted. We'll put a link to that in the show notes, but uh, we talk about it in the interview and we'll get to that in a moment. But of course, first up, it's time for uh, news and views. So first news and view this evening, another fun project from HashiCorp, Terraformed. There was lots of buzz about this. Did you guys see this? Oh, yeah. I missed everything. I, I saw the buzz, haven't actually had time to look at it with, with any like level of you know depth, unfortunately. Yeah, you know, I am in the same boat, Seth. I've just been so busy, but there was lots of buzz on the Twitter sphere. There was lots of people kind of with their jaw dropping. Looks pretty interesting. Um, I mean, it's like a competing thing to Amazon's cloud formation, it, it looks like. Yeah, it, it's yeah, it's it's well. Though it looks open like source it, and, well, yeah. and it looks like though it puts a lot of the components together. It's interesting. I was I was amused that it was like Amazon, and then they also manage DNS, which reminded me of like it's always a DNS problem. It's like the two things they tackle first is like you know Amazon management and then DNS. So yeah, but I, I it's if it's like any other HashiCorp product, their slogan should be you're gonna love it because people tend to love their stuff. Yeah, so. it it, seem, it seems that I'm just I'm. <sighs> The adoption is what I'm worried about because it sounds all, all nice and good. I really like the whole execution plan, that that whole, like, the model that they have. Mm-hmm. I really like 
like, hey, you're going to make this change your infrastructure, and here's what's going to happen, and like, here's what, how the graphs are going to change. And I think that's fantastic. I just, I, I'm not sure if people are, if, are they going to jump on wholesale, or are they going to be like locked into the tyranny of their existing tools? Even though there's this nice shiny thing that's like, we do all the providers, and we do Chef and Puppet, and all the clouds. And yeah, yeah, it's funny. I mean, I'm sure that a lot of infrastructures have done their own homegrown versions of those, you know, of basically this behavior. So I, they probably won't replace it wholesale, but for greenfield stuff, looks pretty interesting. It can't be any worse than cloud formation. <laughs> I mean, cloud formation gives me hives. <laughs> well, I was gonna say, given given that they've compared it to you know cloud formation, or as I see with my cloud to butt plugin, butt formation. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, that in heat, it's, Seth, are you drunk? No, no, I just really like this cloud to butt. Plugin. How would we know? Yeah, yeah, seriously. <laughs> but I but if you've used heat or cloud formation, you they're both just pain and sadness right now. And yeah. so basically... That's what I tell people like about their chef environments. I say when your environment file starts to look like a cloud formation file, you're in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Just abort. Just shut it down. Yeah, yeah pretty much nuke the whole thing and start over. <laughs> Maybe with terraforming. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Speaking of cloudy stuff, there was an interesting article in Gizmodo a couple weeks ago about a Netflix's OpenConnect machine. I linked to it just because we talk about Netflix a lot. Uh, we know a lot of the people that Netflix. We talk a lot about their technology. I knew very little to nothing about OpenConnect, and so it was kind of an interesting look into how they do that. It's a very small machine. It's like a machine of all the hard drives, and basically it's kind of like their L1 cache of shows, so it's the, the majority of the shows shows that are popular now, I guess, get distributed out to these little machines that they put in racks at edge networks like Comcast and Verizon after they've paid the mob fee to let them transfer that data across to the cable company's customers. Did you guys know about OpenConnect or that, or am I the only one late to this party, or is this... No, I've never no, I haven't it. seen it. Yeah. Oh, I had heard about the... the ta- I mean, I knew they were doing it, but this is the first time I've seen the the thing. Like, yeah. I, knew this, I knew this was... I knew the, the you know, them putting the servers on the edge networks for the... I mean, I knew they were doing that. I just... The details were, you know, it's like, oh, we know they're doing it, and... Question mark. Yeah, well, so it's funny, because I actually... I mean, I knew that they were using a CDN. I, I thought they were actually using a CDN. I didn't know that they were like, hey, we'll do it ourselves and we'll do it better. It's it's very Google-esque of them. But I, I mean, they, they like building their own tools. So. Well, that's true. But I mean, but it makes good sense, right? I mean, uh, basically, oh, yeah. you know, shipping a box with a huge number of hard drives and fans and a network card to put places and it's cheap and you don't pay for the extra CDN weirdness and they can sort of manage it. That totally makes sense. I thought the most amusing part of the article was uh, the last section, which was uh, titled, So Can I Have One? That would be nice to have one. Netflix at home. (laughs) It comes on a pallet. Next up, for those of you that uh, love weird operating systems, an article about HP giving OpenVMS new life. Anyone, uh, anyone of you guys do uh, any OpenVMS stuff? No, I thought that was OpenVMs. Yeah, yeah actually, yeah, I, I made that mistake too, OpenVMs. So VMS is still around. I mean, yeah, no, I had the same reaction. So I, I only, so I never really, I, I don't, I even, never, I don't even think I ever had an open VMS account. But I remember that our school district ran on it. Like our schedules was like VMS Basic. It was this massive thing in VMS Basic. And so yeah, it's interesting. I think probably the most interesting part of this article is this, the company that HP is licensing it to to continue running it and supporting it. They're talking about porting it to uh, Intel, <laughs> which is interesting. It runs on Itanium now. but So yes, if you have uh, your, get your open VMS cluster, there's hope for you. Or you could just change operating systems. And welcome to 1995. And finally, yep, uh, we've got an article on the 14 of the world's best living programmers. It's interesting. Did you guys see this article? Did you look at? Did you recognize any of the programmers? Oh yeah. Some of them I can't. I couldn't pronounce their names. Well, yeah. some of them. I, one of them I don't know if they should be on there because of the way they treat people. Oh, is this Linus? Yeah. <laughs> it's funny too because the picture of Linus, he's in a tuxedo, and it's like, but he's such an. A- I didn't know he fit in one of those. <laughs> 
I'm serious. Yeah, I, 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 I'm really over de people defending his bad behavior, and I'm really over him continuing his bad behavior. Yeah. So anyway, but uh, so I, I did not know John Skeet is the program with the highest reputation score of all time on Stack Overflow. There are international Olympiads in informatics. Apparently. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll stop. <laughs> I feel like uh, we used to think you're like nerds. <laughs> Some of these I know. I, I mean, like, I, I mean, like, I thought the chess club was bad enough. <laughs> so like Richard Stallman. I mean, obviously, but um, and John Carmack. But then some of these others, I just I don't know who they are. Uh, the I think seen search engine. I'd like to talk to him. Yeah. <laughs> when you say talk, do you mean with fists? Something. <laughs> Maybe my but combat so, boots. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I have to actually keep notes on searches that I've had to make for Chef because I can't, th because I just can't. <laughs> oh, my God. Don't even get me started on the Lucy soon. <laughs> and our beloved Donald Nuth is in there. Yeah, I, I mean, I always figure Nuth and Thompson will be in there. They're, I mean, those, those are, I mean, I don't necessarily know their programming ability just other than I've read all their stuff, so. And also, like, everything. Why is the guy from Quora on here? Yeah. <laughs> I noticed that. <laughs> he paid them off. I don't know. I hope that like um, he sold it before they started making you have to register to use it. Well, he's a programmer, not a marketing person. Not so a yeah, I actually person. have never used Quora. Yeah. Because I end up with unsearched results there, and I see that they want me to do something, and I leave. Yeah, I don't want to have to sign in. Oh, hey, there's a non-white guy in here. Uh, oh yeah, the, the Google guy. <laughs> he never, they they must have looked really hard. Main claim to fame: oh. key Google architect. Yeah. Well, and I will I will point out this is uh, interesting. No. Why are there no women in this list? Well, they so the if you uh, reading through the thread, I kind of started counting if it ever comes up, and the first one that comes up is actually uh, in the in at least the thread is promoted as uh, Marissa Meyer, and not like. I don't know Grace Hopper or well Grace Hopper's dead but <laughs> well is it was it was it living I'm sorry yeah no it, programmers. but was but Marissa really, pro, no was they can't Mar be living because uh didn't you know no women have done anything of note since that, that since they like started no, uh didn't I thought I thought maybe I'm oh no I thought Newt passed away. <laughs> Sorry. You're going to get a very angry letter from Donald Newth, Seth. It says best living programmers. No, I was, no I'm mixing up with, uh, with uh, God, who is it? Uh, I want to say Richie. Yeah. Sorry. Apologies to Newth. Yeah. That's <laughs> the sea guy, right? You sh uh, yeah. You should apologize to Newth. <laughs> if I ever get the chance to meet him, I will apologize for thinking that he was dead. <laughs> All right. Well, next up, Kevin Bear, Dave Bloom, Praxis Flow, and DevOps. Yeah, this should be. Welcome back to Chip Show. I'm your host, Paul Reed. So I am here with the uh, Praxis Flow crew, Kevin Bear and Jay Bloom. Welcome to the Chip Show, gentlemen. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> so you have just come back from Agile conference 2014 so we're recovering from that that was a lot of fun i had a great time yeah tell us a little bit about that i mostly remember <laughs> you gave a talk there yeah i did and uh, you did a workshop jabe i gave a talk at a workshop. oh I, that's even more stuff then yeah <laughs> I think so. Melissa Perry, who is working with us now at Praxis Flow, did a talk. Jabe did like 150 talks at Agile. <laughs> Paul, you did a talk on instrument rated staff. Will Evans was the track chair. Who was not there. Who was not there, but, he <laughs> but in honor, he was the track chair. So, I mean, it was kind of a mini Praxis Flow event in a weird way. Yes, full disclosure for the audience I've just started working with Praxis Flow, and it's been a lot of fun to uh, come and, and see all the kind of new techniques and stuff that I've read about and am now getting to play with. Yeah. And that's cool. It's been a lot of fun for all of us. But yeah, I think Agile was kind of an interesting scenario this year. I think there's a lot of transition going on in Agile right now. We're starting to see a lot. Of, for the first time, I, I think I saw a lot of big organizations uh, at Agile this year. I mean, not that they probably aren't normally, but it just seemed like there were a lot of really big companies there. A lot of kind of restlessness around scaling. This whole thing about DevOps, I'm, I'm really, really kind of surprised at how, I'm going to say it, I, I'm really surprised at how slow the Agile community has really been. Uh, since it's kind of 
a child of Agile in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And and so it, I guess the thing that I walked away from the Agile conference with was it was fun to see friends that you don't get to see all the time from all around the world and, and to hear some interesting talks. But I'm actually really kind of surprised at how set in its ways the community is right now, which is interesting to me given its name. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, well, I think from a DevOps standpoint, the thing that I was noticing... Uh, Dominica DeGrandis and Andrew Schaefer did the DevOps track, and mm-hmm. it was those talks there were all great. I mean, just the lineup was, yeah, it was really amazing. Good. But I think it was really useful for you know a lot of the people in the DevOps track or people that I see at like DevOps days and DevOps focused events. But to actually go see how the Agile community and to be just fly on the wall for some of the conversations, Jabe, you were having like with the Lean UX crew. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting to see the intersection of ideas, but slightly different words in yeah. slightly different context. Super useful for, I think, the DevOps people that go to DevOps days and they hear it all kind of the same way yeah. uh, and hear, hear it from the different perspective. Yeah. The elephant from the, the different side, the other side. Yeah, I think it's interesting to see the new blood come in where it's uh, you know the DevOps blood and the UX blood coming into the Agile movement. Both tracks were smaller tracks and had smaller audiences. I'd love to see them get more attention during the conference. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, lots of interesting ideas coming out of there, and it's the kind of differences that will cause new thinking. So I think that's really useful to actually have some some level of conflict, some level of <laughs> headbutting Yeah, you get something new happening. Yeah, no, I, I, I was, like, talking to people about being comfortable with things emerging and not, you know, not needing to rush to some sort of kind of quick consensus about what things are, especially even in DevOps and, mm-hmm. and as UX is still, I think, emerging too in, in, in this space. And so I think as engineers, that tension that Jay was talking about is that if you think of, that engineering essentially is a design thing and, and, and science is about inquiry. You know, I, I really like Derek Drexler's quote about that. The guy who wrote Radical Abundance. And so in essence, engineers are taking rules that scientists have discovered through doing experiments and they're rearranging them into different shapes and making new things out of them but but they're not really inventing new things in a sense so it was really interesting for me to hang out with a bunch of engineers and their biggest problem was they wanted to know you know is there an RFC for DevOps like is there some sort of spec that I can use to understand what this is so I can use it in my world like a like it's like a tool or something uh, well I recently went to a conference and I was somewhat disturbed it was someone from IBM's government division and in her talk she spoke for a half hour about the DevOps, non-ironically, I'll add. But so it was the DevOps. It was the DevOps. But the right. other thing, I, and that was like kind of, hopefully people are giggling because I was giggling. But the big thing, she was like, we need to standardize this because there's all these tools and all of these methodologies and we need to standardize it. And I was like, no, that's, that's exactly what made it kind of come up as a thing in the first place. And there are some certain obviously fundamental things that you want to talk about, but I... It, it was almost the slap in the face of, yes, of course, IBM would want to standardize it so that they can sell it. And that's when you get into this kind of, I think, scary territory. And nothing against IBM. You see a lot of vendors doing that. You see it in OpenStack. You see it in various ways, like, this is what it means. But, I mean, clearly, if the ops people would just expose an API that was rational and well-structured, then us developers, we could interact with you better, and you guys would appear to be more rational. <laughs> exactly, exactly. If only. We could just wrap you with an API. <laughs> exactly right. More like the robots we expect you to be. Exactly. You know, it, that is really funny that you say that, because there <laughs> There's a, there's a certain segment of the DevOps community that's rooted in the developers thing, and I think that's one of the parts of the message that, as an ops it's guy, the sometimes... the part of DevOps. Exactly, <laughs> that really can rub me wrong, which is this whole notion that we're optimizing for developers. I'm like, no, I'm, excuse me, I'm sorry, that's really not what DevOps is about. It's not about making the fastest train to you guys doing what you want to do. It's about all of us working together to deliver value, right? I and thought it was mostly about automating all the operators out of the picture. <laughs> exactly, having so no ops, right? <laughs> And right. the developers could just get on with developing. Things. Exactly, right. without any friction, right? So we could go back to a pre-Newtonian right. physics. <laughs> I have to say, it's funny. We, we talked about this post a couple times. Did you see that DevOps is killing the developer? Yes. Oh, uh, yes. And yes. the thing that frustrated me about that was he gives the example of his, I think, father, who's the dentist. And he's like, my father employs all these people, like bookkeepers and reception and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, my father could keep the books because he's smart enough. He's a dentist. But he doesn't. And I was like, yes, I'm sure your father and, and developers can run off the, like, they could probably run the site. But 
it's an efficiency thing. Bookkeepers are very efficient and good at their job and they know all the tweaks and the loopholes and that's why you hire them to do that job as opposed to doing it yourself and doing a bad job of it. Right. This is why I hire an accountant to do my taxes as opposed to I could fumble through all of the stuff. And so it was very interesting to me. I, that post resonated with me on certain things. But on that one thing, I was like, that's a horrible example because it discounts all of the useful and valuable and yes, it's it's silo domain knowledge that the ops people have. And again, it's this pattern of, you know, and you know my background's release engineering. It's this shut up with your make files and you're building on the same environment and configuration managing any of that stuff because it's fine. It, it builds on my desktop sort of thing. It's interesting to see it even be sort of thought of that way. Yeah. We're still fighting that that notion. Well, and I, the hardest part for me is, and, and, I, and I've been saying this with increasing intensity in, in talks, and I'm, I'm probably going to have a talk just about this all together together by itself, which is, as a scientist, it's frustrating to me to listen to talk after talk in what I'm kind of starting to call the DevOps echo chamber about how culture is the most important mm-hmm. thing, right? And and I listen to everybody say this. And for the record, I absolutely agree that culture, but I see it a little bit differently, is that culture is an abstraction. It's not really a thing that you can go out and touch or actually even change or manipulate. It's, it's, it's an abstraction we create to represent what we observe in terms of interactions in a system. And so what, what I get really frustrated frustrated about is is that the language with which this community uses to talk about supposedly the most important thing is quite frankly stuck in kindergarten and I'm kind of at the point where if I hear another culture talk at a DevOps days and somebody doesn't actually bring science into it at this point I'm going to start calling it out because not that, that it all has to be science oriented talk but in a sense that there are entire sciences devoted to studying culture and actually observing phenomena creating hypothesis testing hypothesis on how culture can be moved, how it can be evolved, and yet none of this is in any of these conversations. So it's almost like we've decided the answer to the world's problems is red paint, but nobody can find any red paint. And it's like, and nobody is even trying to make red paint. We just all complain about how there's no red paint. And I'm like, this is really doesn't make any sense to me. So on the one hand, when I listen to the guy talk about specialization in a job thing, and he actually talking about what is really a, a very complex design problem about how you divide up tasks in an organization, you know, the division of labor. I, it's really weird for me to hear an agilista or people that profess to be an agile complaining about becoming more full stack like they're being de-skilled in the sense of like in a union environment where you try and you know use less people because you're trying to just make one person do nine jobs now and then it's really weird to listen to folks in this agile community argue for very tailoristic centric approaches on how work division of labor should be happening and i think that's really like freaking bizarre to me like i don't get it yeah so i actually wanted to bring that up because you've talked in the past in talks and then also over coffee and conversations we have about taylor and so for people that don't know, and I actually did not know this till about three months ago when I was like, I'm going to look at the Wikipedia page. Um, and there was an article, I'll see if I can find it in Slate or something that, that introduced this. So Taylor was like the father, we were talking about the modern, I guess, management theory. So like uh, the term usually is scientific management. Uh, okay. And it, it was the attempt to take science, which was very popular at the time when Taylor was alive. And this uh, is like... Of- 18, late 1800s or early 1900s. Turn of the century, yeah. yeah. So th- this is a period of time when anything credible was science. Right. right. Scientism yeah. was the big thing, yeah. So really, you know, if you go back and look at it, it, this all starts with Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, and he basically says, invisible hand of the market and division of labor is what causes kind of the Industrial Revolution to actually work. And, you know, if you go look back and look at it, he basically says the classic kind of example of it is you go into a pin factory, you can make about 10,000 pins in a day if you divide the labor up. But if you ask one person to make a pin, they'll make you 10 pins a day. Right. So there's like a massive increase in efficiency, which is really what they're focused on. How many more pins can we make an individual person make in a day? And it's division of labor that does that. And so then you get up to Taylor, and Taylor basically starts saying, okay, well, the answer to making more efficient and therefore more productivity therefore more um, profit and therefore more <laughs> profit is to focus on the individual and do what he called time and motion studies which he literally watched how people move and then he instructed them very explicitly on exactly how to move the most efficiently but the thing I found interesting about his premise 
his premise was kind of we need to do these studies because the people you've hired are inherently stupid. It, um, so like he's got some I mean, really he, awesome yeah. quotes like the best men for making pig iron are as dumb as ox. Like, <laughs> right. He also has like a theory called soldiering and soldiering is this idea that literally if you took a stopwatch and timed the amount of time it takes a man to walk to work and then timed him walking away from work, walking home, he would walk much faster to get home than he does to walk to work. So he's inherently lazy. Right. And part of the reason why we need to measure how quickly he's doing something is so that we can have a standard for him to work to. And this literally was essentially, here's the standard amount of bricks that you need to move per hour. If you move less bricks than that, you're fired. If you move more bricks than that, we'll give you a bonus. Right. But this is the standard. And if you can't live up to it, you're going to get fired. And this is it flies in the face of the, you know, with DevOps, we talk about Toyota, the Toyota production system, Toyota car, all that. It flies in the face of that because that's like, we know those numbers. We've done the research. It implies we know all of that. Yep. And there's no time for you to learn to yep. do any better yep. to help actually help the organization. So right, right. One the, you yeah. know, one of the main things about it, at least, is you know when you look at Deming and some of the guys who, who start the Toyota production system, what they in essence say is there's nothing wrong with science. There's nothing wrong with applying science to work. But Taylor applied it to the wrong part. So Taylor basically did atomistic science. He focused it on the individual. And what Lean does is tries to do systemic science. It says the problem is at the systems level, not at the individual level. But one of the key things, too, that I think that is important to really point out about scientific management, in a sense, is, is that not only, uh, I really agree with what Jay was saying, uh, where they're measuring the wrong things, it's interesting that the science was bad. So they didn't actually, they weren't objective experiments. And so the, the irony is, is we called it scientific management, but it was the first iteration of somebody trying to apply science, really probably more scientism at the point, just yeah. because, and, and by the way, this is the root, Jay does talk about this a lot of work people say things like he has it down to a science if you're a scientist you understand that that phrase absolutely means nothing (laughs) because science literally just means we don't know so we have to keep asking in a very structured way so when somebody's saying it's down to a science i'm always like oh so we don't know anything still about that and everybody's like well no 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 that means we do know and i'm like so we should be saying we have that down to engineering right yeah yeah but the the interesting thing in the article that i read that i remember when when they were talking about the places Taylor did the experience. But there's like the industries. There's a weird patriarchal vibe that goes through it too, where it's it's like science. Like let's do the experiments, but it's that sort of people are inherently lazy, so there's a bias. Like I that was my theory, so I have to kind of prove that with these metrics that they've shown actually aren't the right things to measure, like walking to work and weird stuff like that. Yeah, I mean the, the you know Taylorism is maybe the most common place where people identify this concept of separate of mind and hands so literally yeah. management will do the thinking you will do the working right and it gets it's pretty weird I think at kind of the inhumane level even if you're just talking about moving bricks like it's basically saying listen do not think just machine right like just do well and that's like the, the metaphor. Other people right, right. <laughs> yeah well and that was the metaphor at the turn of the century I mean the industrial revolution and you know I want to make a really good point though is that everything we have today stands on the shoulders of this yeah. so so just like determinism, you know, I've been often quoted for saying that, you know, I think determinism is a quaint, you know, Victorian notion, yeah. is very useful. Because without those basic rules that we had determined that were wrong, in uh, now we now know, but we wouldn't have kept advancing towards what actually became new knowledge. And so Taylorism actually by, you know, and I think Taylor gets credit for a lot of things that he never did, like, you know, like you were mentioning, I think we lump him together to turn him into Hitler. I think Taylor, at the end of the day, really helped us because he actually quickly, in a, in a span of about 30 to 40 years, completely disproved most of his ideas. The hard part for me is, is that because business is not like sports or music, in a sense where you practice and you develop your skills, in business we have this whole thing where we reward you for repeated success, which if you really do research, creates a peril problem in terms of creating moral hazards. But but so we don't actually really learn very well in business. And because things are complex really in business, if you understand things when we're talking about complexity, it means that it's really hard to repeat things. In other words, one of the key characteristics of things that happen in complexity is you know irreversibility. Well, there's also that notion of things may make sense when you play them backwards and go, oh, that's why it happened. But then as soon as you try to reapply them, they don't always work. And so in business, 
we have this problem because business people aren't taught science, so they don't actually even really know how to experiment correctly. And so in many cases, what we have is people reliving myths, half-truths, and crazy ideas for the last 30 to 40 years that have no basis in science. So you look at the policies of organizations that are doing things like stacked ranking, doing job reviews, all this stuff. Like, there's been, <laughs> there has been research for going on 20, 30 years that this stuff has negative implications. The things like extrinsic rewards, you know, using big monetary bonuses, like Taylor talked about. You know, we know that this actually corrupts the workforce and makes them lazy. It actually anti-conditions them the correct way. We saw what happened with Wall Street in 2008. I mean, when whenever the controls are weak and the costs are low, we make a lot of risky things go on. And then we use retrospective coherence, I believe, in business to explain our successes when we really don't understand how they happened and we can't reproduce them. So they, it's really strange to me. So we're talking a lot, like I did a talk at Velocity about postmortems and all the biases. Mm. It seems like when business looks back, they fall prey to a lot of those outcome bias. And yeah, and yeah. I mean, the fundamental problem is, and, and and I think you know, as IT people are starting to learn more about quote unquote the business that pays them, I think that the irony is is that a lot of the organizations spend all this time educating people about kind of how to be good corporate citizens, how to do things, but almost no company actually teaches their people how to actually improve daily. So here's an interesting scenario. So a company like Toyota starts, you know, they were what, bankrupt in the 50s, the banks were in there. And so literally the company got split into two different companies. So the sales and marketing team got split into a separate company from the manufacturing team. Mm. So one of the reasons why Toyota made such unappealing cars for 10 years was that they had no idea what people wanted like they couldn't talk to themselves <laughs> and like but they were they were on this path of figuring out how to make the small cars the small cars better and make money off of them but they started when Ono started in the 50s with them or late 40s their entire production system that they built in 1937 to start building cars was based on Taylor's ideas it was all based on Ford's ideas and Taylor's ideas yep. and so they started out with the same division of labor concepts with the same very very harsh worker concepts as everybody else. The big difference is you fast forward 30 years later after 1950 when Ono was there in 1983, instead of just making three and a half cars per person like Ford had for the last 80 years, they were making 14 and a half cars per person with half the floor space, half the cycle time, half the defects, all that stuff. But the thing was that we didn't realize was, is that they began to shed, because of their continuous improvement process that they started building, they began to shed key pieces of Taylorism as they improved. Things like respect for worker emerge, things like the workers do all the improvements, the workers are learning, they're doing the scientific method, they do their own reorganizations, they do Kanbans, like all that happened on the floor with workers. It would have never happened in a tailor factory because they weren't allowed to learn. Well, and this is very important because I think a lot of times people hear those metrics from Ford and Toyota and they think that somehow because it's like three and a half cars to Ford and 14, like they're killing the workers. You know what I mean? They're like yeah. making them work all, you know, and, and you're saying actually it's it was the opposite. It was that they were given the leeway to learn and they respected because they were the closest to the work. Yeah, so in Lean, we have seven ways, like a kind of concept of seven waste and it's really indicative that there became what is known as the eighth waste it's the the last of the wastes and it's the waste of human potential and this is the the nugget piece of what it means to respect humans in this system because it's not respect humans like we should all hug or we should all get along better it's, it's a lot of the culture talks are like let's just hug and have a beer and problems will go away exactly it's yeah. respect humans on two different levels one Respect what humans can do. Respect that humans can figure things out if you give them the opportunity to. Give them the opportunity to and respect that they probably can think better, especially if they're closer to the work. So it's the opposite of this Tayloristic mind-hand thing. It's by respecting humans, we actually drive decision-making into the space where the work is being done, which is great. But the other side of it is respect that humans can't do everything. So there's a limiting factor. It's a bounded respect. It's not an infinite respect. And in the lean concept, there's a concept called automatization, which is the idea that humans and machines relate and that machines are sometimes better at things than humans are. And it's the boundary that we define between humans and machines that actually causes the system to be effective. Mm -hmm. So these kind of subtle balances 
what they mean by respecting humans in, in the lean or in at least the Toyota production system is not what Americans tend to think when you say you need to respect me. Right. It's yeah. Not really the same term. Expect my authority. But yeah, that actually is a really good point because in the scenario that you're talking about with respect, they went from having a a system that was really defined by Taylor's technical architecture. In other words, the machinery included humans and it included actual machines, but together they formed this like meta-machine in his mind that was mechanical. And what we proved over time with Toyota, by the way, Toyota has factories where workers aren't treated the best, has really messy factories in some places they're human beings just like the rest of us so they're not some sort of god deified exactly not deified them the the big thing that makes toyota work is this continuous improvement thing right and so what they actually reversed was the systems were engineered for the equipment and for the purpose originally and then they figured out they chose people based on how they served the machinery and that's what you call a techno social system the technology comes first and then you figure out how to wrap the people around it but what actually happened after enough improvement happened past the 50s was is it actually became what's called a socio-technical system which means that what's most important is that the people continue to develop and learn first and then secondly they dictate how the technology is used based on what they're learning it's a totally the opposite so do you think then that's why at some level this is so familiar to people in the software industry because for such a long time to do programming you really had to wrap yourself around punch cards and weird terminals and weird I mean you were really yeah. serve you were serving the technology to get it to do the thing yeah and now that we have the technology is fast enough we're getting into the bottleneck is no longer the weird stuff with the technology it's actually the computers are fast enough it's how do we build organizations that can actually build and operate software so so to me that like one of the main differences and you can start to see this a little bit in the difference between Ford's factories and Toyota's factories has to do with increasing variability right mm-hmm. so you Mm -hmm. Ford's making one type of car, and Toyota is actually, in order to compete in a market where they're not sure what kind of car to make, they have to be able to create a variable number of cars, Mm -hmm. right? So part of this is about this idea that if I have a single kind of homogenous output, I can specify very exactly what I expect the outcome to be, right? And therefore, even at the component level, like I can give you this tolerances for a screw, and I can say, I don't really care how you make the screw, just within those tolerances. And I, then I know whether or not you can do that or not, and that, that, that works. Now, that means you as an individual could potentially be doing the screw making, and I don't really care. As we get into higher and higher variability output, we require more and more subcomponents to interact in more and more complex ways, which means I have experts that not only have to interact with the objects that they're making, but with each other in order to make those objects work together. We increase cycle time and then make the objects disappear so they're not physical, they're conceptual inside the computer, and you get a much more difficult problem is the social part of this than it is the technical part of this. In other words, social epistemology, the ability to both discover and transmit information and knowledge to each other, is the limiting factor in most organizations, not how to program it. Once we all agree what we're building, we can all go do our job. It literally is agreeing what to build, and then you just kind of, again, you add in this concept, you know, where you get people doing kind of lean startup like we have to spin every day. Now you have to spin every day and make sure everybody's in sync every day, and you have to move information around even better and more effectively, and you can't have isolated silos in those situations. So why now, that doesn't mean you can't have specializations, right? but the information has to flow in special kinds of ways. Right. Is, that, is that why it's uh, really hard, you think, for enterprises, and by which I just mean big organizations, that's why this is, process is hard? Yeah, absolutely. Because of that. Yeah. It compounds it. I mean, yeah. you just add more complexity. And the other piece about that, too, I mean, you were talking about in the early days of developing on the technology, right, you know, how it was an abstraction where we were working on punch cards. So I think one of the best examples of that was a book I read as a freaking kid, which was The Mythical Man Month. Mm-hmm. So the whole notion that, you know, the largest OS development project at the time for, I think it was the three. 60 OS at IBM, right? And the project manager had, you know, it's like, I, I everybody should read this little journal. It's just a thin little journal. A way to read it for software engineering. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Brooks, and, right? and so, I mean, what was the basic problem, right? We learned that we distill all these projects that are large into like man hours or man months. We uh, we think, gosh, it's going to take this many man hours to do it. So then let's divide that by how many people we can get. That tells us how many people we need, right? Or whatever the, the, the math equation is. 
And then the thing they realized was it's like every time we added another person, the amount of effectiveness we got out of the, the stuff they could deliver like went down and like to the point where we were adding people and only getting half of another person's capacity. And they were like, what is all of this extra time going for? Well, the whole communicating problem. Yeah. And so you get a Tower of Babel problem when you throw people at this stuff. And I think that's why as things get more complex, we hit these breaking points where these old ideas of how we divide labor up, you know, and we're really still operating in a modality that was developed functionally in IT in the early 80s. The freaking client-server thing set us back like probably 30 years in my mind because we're already back to where we left. We got back on the highway right. where we were and on the mainframe world side of things. Now we're back to well, containers and that, virtualization. I was going to say that is so hilarious because it's like virtualization new and it's like IBM's like yeah. yeah, OS 360 did that if exactly. you remember. Yeah. Exactly. And so it's like this, this idea that somehow we need to cling to the vestiges of the 80s idea that you know now that we have a, a network, a client, and a server and that all of this specialization emerged and so now like you go into organizations and you look at people's title and like I swear there are analysts that just analyze analysts we have like the deepest craziest crevasses of excellence they're not even silos they're not nearly big enough to store grain and it's like we now take 10 to 15 people in a room when we have an outage to figure out how we're going to move because well i don't know i don't know the network well i don't know the firewall well i don't know the ids well i don't know and we're just in all in networking right and now servers are networks right. <laughs> you know, like so we have this problem where it's all reconverged and we can't deal with the complexity on our own we must collaborate and I believe DevOps is a response in the same way that coal miners banded together in the post-World War II to work together because of death and fear and all that stuff. Well, we're doing the same thing again now. So that's actually, I wanted to ask you about that because there were talk at DevOps Days Pittsburgh and I told a couple people this. It's like, oh, you know, Kevin did a talk on how DevOps is like coal mining in the 50s. And they're like, huh? Right. So, what was that for people that didn't have a chance to see it? And we'll link to it in the show notes. But what was what was the premise of that talk? Because it's it was a fascinating talk, and I really enjoyed it. But when you introduce it that way, that we're all just like coal miners, people are like, "I'm not a coal miner." Well, it was really funny. I I listened to Andrew Clay Schaefer introduce me to somebody at the Agile conference, and I and I'm paraphrasing what he said, but I loved what he said. It actually made me feel really wonderful. And he was like, "This is Kevin. Kevin's kind of weird. Like what he does is like he brings in things from other places." like science and different sciences and different stories and then shows people how things have happened before that are like what they've already experienced. But the story with the coal miners that was interesting to me was so post-World War II reconstruction basically we needed lots of coal. Yeah, in England we needed a lot of coal because it was going to power rebuilding all the we blew up. I mean, it was a big problem. And so the government was like, we need lots of output. And the problem is, is every day there was like 20% absenteeism on the job. So nobody would show up because coal mining kind of sucks. It's long periods of boredom interspersed with, you know, short periods of terror and death <laughs> and like, you know, lost loved ones, right? So it was a horrible job. And the problem was, is in that Taylor kind of, this was when Taylorism was in its full swing, early 50s and late 40s, was the idea is, is that you just do your little thing and you don't learn anything and you just repeat it all day. You're a machine, right? Right. So the coal miners had something that was really cool going for them. There was a technological advance that happened that allowed them to actually be more safe. It actually protected the roofs of the mines better. Somebody came up with a mine technology. So literally, they didn't have to look up all the time while they were working and waiting for the mine to collapse. So once that happened and they could feel a little more safe, then they focused on some other things. But when they were in the mine, their middle managers didn't know what they were doing. And they would go down some of these guys, and what had happened is the British government funded studies to find out, are there some coal mines that are doing better than others? Because we want everybody to do the best thing possible to get more coal out. Actually, the funny thing was is that the coal companies weren't interested in producing more because they knew it would actually lower the price of coal. Right. So they're kind of like, whatever. So this was like government mandated, and they sent sociologists down in the mines. So Eric Trist and these guys from a small group called the Tavistock Group, a bunch of consultant sociologists went down there and looked at them, and they realized that there were some coal miners that actually put out more coal, were safer, and they were happier, and they showed up for work every day. So they wanted to find out what they were doing, so they had to follow them into the mine, and and they go down to the mine. By the way, the middle managers took all the credit for their extra output. And they're right. like, oh, this is interesting because you're not really doing anything different up you're not, here. Yeah, you're right, exactly. <laughs> so, so they're like, it must be down there. So they go down to the mine because the middle managers don't do that. And here's the funny thing they realized. After they got the miners to trust them a little bit, the miners were democratizing work as soon as they got into the tunnel. And they're all like, hey, you know, today I'm not doing so well. 
I'm not going to be able to do my specialization, which is like explosives, and I think I need to be on my feet for that, but I was out late last night or I'm sick or whatever. Hey, could you maybe learn some of my job so that you could do some of this? So they were teaching each other like the 20% of their job, each other, that is 80% of what you do, like the Pareto. It's not a lot to learn, but you could shadow or right. you know do things around the day. But so then what it got to the point where is after all six guys in the crew could do each other's job, then they would vote when they went down. Hey, who's the sharpest today, you're going to be on safety, who's going to be on the machine thing, who's going to be on the bombs, you know, yeah. and they would divide it up based on who was who wanted to do it. And that meant, hey, I can learn your job, I can learn mine, but it also meant that if the mine got complex and stuff started to fall down from the ceiling and kind of how everything shakes like on Land of the Lost, you know, like if that happened and somebody got hurt, I might be able to do the thing that they only can do that can get us out of the mine. And, and they realized... 20% level, it's better than 0%. Some of this machinery is really complicated that's in the mines. And so, like, some of these mines were so high-performing, they were doing a thing called continuous delivery of coal, which <laughs> I thought was really funny, too, where they were actually just 24 hours a day pumping stuff out. But so these these miners actually banded together because of safety and also because they needed to learn. And they weren't allowed to learn in their job. And they decided together that learning was a human right. And they are like, listen, if we can't learn, then we're not human. And this is actually something, and so I think what's interesting is, is they were banding together to deal with the complexity of their environment. Danger, unpredictability, gases, all kinds of crazy stuff happens when you're in these mines. I really believe that fundamentally, the DevOps response, and, and I theorize, and this is kind of Bear's law of DevOps right now is that I'm saying is that the reason we are doing DevOps and that we must do DevOps is that the systems are so complex that we can't respond accurately to problems or adequately to problems on our own, that we need other people to actually do this. We need diversity. And so we need to be able to have a diversity across the full stack. And so devs and ops, and it's more than just devs and ops. We've talked about this, how it's InfoSec, how it's QA, how it's facilities. It could be facilities, it could be marketing. It's all of us working together on the mission and actually collaborating in a way where we share as much as we can with each other about what's happening so that we have, with with this key capability in sociology, it's called increasing your response repertoire capability. And that allows us to deal with more complexity. And so as we have more... Variability. Yeah, exactly. The same thing Jay was talking about with increased variability. And and it's like we have that in our environments now and no longer can we afford the division of labor the way it was because it doesn't work. But we can't figure out exactly how we should divide things up yet because complexity. So the best thing we can do is look at the complexity because analyzing it doesn't do any good. What does us good is diverse responses together. So that's not always the right response. Now here's the other point of view. Just because DevOps works to deal with complex issues doesn't mean DevOps is what we need when we're doing something that's more controlled, simple, and obvious, where you can actually understand causality, see things moving from left to right, and go, oh, that's what caused this. You don't need DevOps there. Right. Matter of fact, that's a great place for things like ITIL and best practice and stuff where we understand things. But in those simple environments where things are really un- easily understood and very highly constrained, we actually really need to be able to do the opposite of DevOps, which is specialize. So I think what's important to realize is, is that one answer is not the answer. It's a way that we can deal with things together. And I say that humans instinctively in complexity or in fear situations do the Charlie's Angel pose. And the Charlie's Angels pose, you remember that the t-shirt with them where they're all their backs are all together and they got guns pointing out, right? right? That's exactly what DevOps is. I don't know what it is, I don't know where it's at, but we got each other's backs and we got weapons pointing outward. And that's that's what a DevOps situations look like. So it's evolving, it's emerging And people are really funny about saying there's no such things as DevOps teams, don't create silos, I hate silos. And I'm saying, listen, silos are important because at the end of the day, if we collaborated all the time, nobody would get anything done. There are times to collaborate, there are times to not collaborate, there are times to focus by yourself. What we need is the freedom to do that and to democratize how the work gets done close to the work like Jabe was talking about because we understand it better. And middle management's role has to change. Otherwise, just like with the coal miners that were doing this work, the untold part of the story with the coal miners is the middle managers shut down the collaborations because it actually denied them value. They could not report on what people were doing because they didn't know. They couldn't report on why it was working because they didn't understand. And all of these things that middle management's supposed to do, they couldn't do. So what started 
to sort of what's, you, you know, someone at different point in the org might be like, well, why am I paying this person? Right. You send two bobs in to say, so what is it that you do? Right. right? You know what I mean? I take the specs for the drill of the mine <laughs> yeah, from, exactly. you know, yeah. Because they're not people people, right? Right, and, right. And, and it's that so silly kind of idea. So what we have to do, as I've been saying, is repurpose middle management to actually equip, enable, and cultivate the folks on the line. So it's all about, hey, here's how we can do science. Here's how we can improve together. We're coaching. We're not actually deciding and prioritizing for everybody. So I think that like, there's this really interesting dichotomy that happens, or this really interesting paradox, maybe. And paradoxes are a good time, place to find interesting things. Mm-hmm. So I think the thing is that like middle management largely allowed us to develop expertise. Because what they did was that if you were an expert, would you want to literally explain everything you were doing to everybody around you at all times? <laughs> right. You'd never get anything done, no. right? Yeah. So what middle management generally does in kind of the simple domains is they they coordinate. They make sure stuff happens in a sequence so that you don't have to pay attention to what's happening around you and you can focus and develop expertise. And we hear that, right? A lot of managers say my job is to keep the from flowing down onto my team. That's, that's, what, they, right. that's what they say, right? It's, it's front-running all and that. And to make sure the trains run on time, yeah. right? And that metaphor is literally in some of the scaling metaphors now, right? Like, yeah. literally, there's a train that goes by. You don't have to know anything about this, but you got to put your stuff on the train on time. Well, right? yeah, the release train, train. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, eBay was famous for that, I think. So we've yeah. got this idea where we can rely on middle management to coordinate ourselves, right? So we don't have to worry about that, which has developed significant learned helplessness when it comes comes to the relationship becomes we need to relate now because in fact the manager doesn't know how to sequence this because it's a complex because situation. it's a complex problem yeah. so if it's not a simple problem it collapses over into a complex problem so it becomes something where nobody really knows what to do then all of a sudden the manager can't do the coordination and we've been so spoiled by being coordinated and allowing to focus on our little niches that we look up and we're like I don't want to talk to anybody I don't want to talk to anybody anywhere else so we can't create these kind of emergent teams very quickly that can deal with the complex issue. Right. And that's why you have these, like, when people talk about change teams, they talk about storming, norming, and forming, right? And yeah. it's like that that all is a complete waste of buildup because in a scenario where you actually are, are used to operating that way, there's no storming or norming. Right. You get there's norming just and forming. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we're saying, like, this is just stupid. Right. And then, you know, the answer to every problem that we have now is, is that we've been preconditioned, like James says, to throw our hands up in the air, stop work, run to the manager and say, we need a meeting. And then we pull all these people together in a room because complexity, but our responses are so dulled because we're conditioned that somehow we're going to diffuse responsibility in the meeting, find safety together, rather than actually solve the problem because we're so busy with the storming, norming bullshit. And like, that's all waste. It's session buildup. If you're a network guy, like, you know, it's a lot of acnacs that you don't need. And what we're focusing on now is this idea of, we're actually experimenting with this in clients right now, is the idea of ephemeral crews to be able to deal with dynamic capabilities. Not DevOps teams, not silos, but think across silos. This is like permeable cell walls. Like we can actually communicate across our cells just like our bodies do, but also be separate because we're a cell and we have walls. So and have good feedback loops. Exactly, because they, they have to respirate in and out every cell. It doesn't mean that we're completely sealed. And I, I remind people about this because the silo metaphor doesn't actually really work the way people think it does. Silos actually are not closed. They are open. The whole point is you store things in them that you need every day, that you get in and out of the silo. The first thing is you dump all the haylage or cornage or whatever's in there, and then you feed it to cows or pigs. Well, also, <laughs> if you build, I've, heard, I've seen this, I didn't know that you could do this, but I grew up in Colorado, and every once in a while, a silo would literally catch on fire and explode because they didn't have the right release of right. the gas from the corn or whatever it was. And I was like, they, that, yes, you actually need to have ventilate that properly. Exactly. That yeah, matter of fact, you know, one of my first drinking experiences was uh, drinking the bottom of what comes out of a corn haylage silo, which is essentially grain alcohol. And you learn pretty quick that that has utility. But, you know, the, <laughs> the other thing is, it's not so much that for you, you can sell that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's negative health points. But So a lot of this sounds like in your presentation at Agile, which you did in the DevOps track and talked about a lot of these things, you had a slide up and I thought it was hilarious. You called it DevOps gump. DevOps is as DevOps does. Are these the ideas you're trying to communicate with that phrase? 
phrase, this sort of DevOps is as DevOps does sort well, of Well, I was trying to actually, I'm sorry, you know, I actually put up before that C.S. Pierce uh, is kind of the father of modern pragmatism and philosophy, and Pierce actually started this kind of whole anti-realist movement, which I personally subscribe to in, in the philosophy of science. I definitely agree with a lot of his tenets, but one of the things he actually created to help us understand things that may be ambiguous or emergent is this maxim called the pragmatist maxim or the pragmatic maxim. And basically, it's a very complicated phrase that I also had a slide that I oh, put I up before that, that. But that wasn't as fun a slide. No, it was, I couldn't even read it. Like, it's so weird the wording of this. I mean, part of it's that he wrote in the late 1800s, part of it's that he's a philosopher and he's actually a really great writer, part of it's it's an obtuse concept because it is philosophy. Right. And basically the, the concept behind the maxim as I read it is, is that at the end of the day, if you want to understand a thing and you don't understand it, what you need to do is consider all of the possible ramifications that you can consider that there would be if you did this thing. So like, what do the people that are doing it do? And you can actually tell what it is by looking at what they do. Not necessarily is it the thing they do, but you can learn about the ramifications of the thing by watching the actions. And so the, basically the gumpism of that is, is that DevOps is as DevOps does, which is kind of what I created was the Forrest Gumpism. And I think that when we look at what DevOps are doing together, you know, yes, there's the obvious wonderful things like 10 deploys a day and all that kind of stuff with around continuous delivery and continuous integration and, and a lot of new things going on, like, you know, in QA, uh, you know, thankful to people like Elizabeth Hendricks that, that have really, really kind of advanced the science of that. I mean, by the way, if you haven't read Explore It, totally stop and go do that. But I think when I look at the things the community's doing when they're working together across those lines, that is what is emerging as what DevOps is. So when we talk about DevOpsing or we say, I'm a DevOps, or you say, are you, do you have DevOps? A lot of people are getting really funny about that. DevOps. Yeah, or the DevOps, or as like, there's all these people that are asking me all the time, how do you say it? And You're conjugating like, DevOps, you know, yeah. is like, it'll be a great blog name for somebody. But I, I think at the end of the day, I'm, my message in that whole thing was, it's emergent relax, stop trying to define it so much. Let's see where this goes together. And oh, by the way, the only way we're going to advance the field, just like Toyota crawled out of Taylorism, was with continuous improvement. So this whole idea that we can't try new things, that I can't try to put that in my title, or if I'm really proud of what we're doing, I can't create a department that's called this. Well, maybe you don't agree with that, but maybe you didn't agree with what we're doing three years ago anyway. Like the point being is, we don't know where this is going. We have to try stuff. Yep. And that's and, okay. And that's okay. And so stop making it hard for people to iterate this by creating this false pressure to already be a certain way. So I find it odd that the community rooted in Agile, you know, is having such a hard time with people experimenting, iterating, and trying new ideas. And there's going to be a little bit of heresy in all of that. But you know what? Some of that might turn out to be brilliant. Yeah. And the org structure of tomorrow, we don't know what that is. And if DevOps tells us one thing, we don't know what that means. That's why we have it. To me, it's not an end state. All it is is a clue that stuff's changing. Yeah. And we need it to change. And we need it to become more socio-technical, not the other way around. So when people talk about tool DevOps, or what I just call tool ops, right? That's important. It's hard to separate humans from tools because that's key to our evolution. But at the end of the day, we evolved in a relationship with the tools and the, the relationship has to work for humans. And that's the best thing about DevOps, I think. If I see one thing in the collaborations and the work that I'm seeing, it's not the stress of, I have to do seven jobs now because they're de-skilling me, like the guy who complains about that. It's not that, it's just like the coal miners, they're learning. They're learning new things that are really applicable. And the other thing is, is that they're learning more about the whole process, which allows us to make better things for people that need them. So in the end, we should actually have a more humane way of working that actually can inform the rest of business. So I think the interesting thing from that outsider's perspective is going to my first DevOps days recently. Like, I think you guys need to be really careful of one thing, which is, you should be more interested in the things that make you go, huh, we don't know something, than you are interested in the things that go, oh yeah, we know something. And there's this, like, throughout the talks, there's these weaponized mems that are, like, so powerful that, like, I have to tweet them. They're, like, awesome. But if the talks become more highly percentages of these, like, 
highly weaponized MEMS, yeah. you're not, you, now you've just weaponized things. You're not exploring anymore, you're not creating new things. So there's this idea in science, is, is science primarily driven by what we know, mm. or is science primarily driven by what we don't know? And I argue that science is primarily driven by the experience of going, huh, that's something we don't know about, we should explore that more. Mm. And if you guys can manage to keep the movement largely focused on the experiences where you go, huh, that's weird, as opposed to, that. I knew it! <laughs> There's a cat meme that describes what I know. Right. Exactly, or always have felt secretly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We didn't learn, we just had a shared experience, and there's a big difference there, yeah. exactly. And I, I think you're right. I mean, that piece of, and if you look at what's wrong with the enterprise today, it's this notion that everything's a project. We've, we've all talked about this. Like, so the equivalent is, like, we're building a house, someday we're just going to get to live in that thing. And like real organizations, and I think this is part of the grist that's formed DevOps in startups and a lot of these kind of dominant predators that we see out there that we call unicorns. I really believe that if we adopt the idea that we're moving into a treadmill, in other words, we're never going to be where we are. The, we're on a permanent change footing. That is really the spirit of inquiry that is in DevOps, which is we always have to improve. We always have to be moving forward. We're not moving into a house. So it doesn't matter what it is, it's what are we doing together right now. And it's a state of the art. You right. know what I mean? That it continues to evolve because if there is one thing this Agile community needs to learn, it's that Agile is not enough. That's right. DevOps is not enough. Lean is not enough. All of these things are not enough. We live in a multi-ontology world where we need to actually embrace and continue to push the science. And here's the other thing I'm gonna remind us. As much as we love Lean, this stuff is 50 years old, like a lot of it. So this is not new. Tech is 50 years behind just starting to get into lean. Like seriously, we need to go beyond the mechanical manufacturing metaphor and start understanding biology. You know, and I'm gonna say it again, if we are serious that culture matters, then we need to understand that to be a scrum master, you need to understand some anthropology. You need to understand some cognitive science. You need to understand some philosophy. And yeah, sure, lean is great. All of these things are an important part of what you need to know. And if we were gonna talk about culture, then let's talk about sociology. There's a whole freaking scientific language <laughs> describing how work happens, how teams collaborate, and it's called sociology, and then there's anthropology, and there's cognitive anthropology. We can study this stuff, we can be reading. Like I wanna see reading lists that include a heck of a lot less cookbooks about Java and stuff like that. And I wanna see people start reading epistemology and freaking psychology and, and really starting to understand how we work together to meet our needs in the work environment in a way where we can create an experience that produces the products, right? The employee experience or the team experience is the next level. We're not resources, we're humans. And I joke, if you think we're machines, we're more like cats in cars with guns, right? I, I've been joking about this. It's like, if you think your people are controllable, like remote controllable drones, you're going to make really weird plans that are never going to work. That won't yet. <laughs> you know? So, uh, Kevin, James, this has been awesome. It's been great to talk about this stuff. Will you promise to come back and tell us more about the philosophy of DevOps and all of this stuff in the environments that you've seen in six months? As you as you're on that treadmill with us and learn more, you know, pack of tigers couldn't keep me away. <laughs> I'm really excited to. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, thanks. All right, and we'll be back in a moment. Aaron, this your show. Welcome back to the Shift Show. So for our last segment tonight, we're doing a few tip again. Uh, this one's kind of fun. It may not solve all of your problems, as listeners have told us some of our tooltips have, but this is still sort of fun. You can run OpenVMS on it. It is called Cool Old Term. We will link to it in the show notes. It's a code on GitHub, and it is a terminal emulator that makes your, em your terminal emulator look like an old old CRT. They've got different modes. They've got Apple IIe mode. It looks like... Does anyone recognize the orange one? I don't recognize that one. Is that like a trash shady or something? Oh my gosh. I don't know. What is that? Like a dumb terminal? I, I, no, no, no. Well, I think they're specific types. So I know... I One of them I recognize. One of them is the old Apple IIe. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't recognize the other ones. I think and I think there's supposed to be specific kinds of old terminals. The orange? Okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, the blue is like... I, I remember like this... I remember programming... I mean, basic Apple IIe basic on these 
terminals look like this. I wonder how many applications would totally not work because they are the fonts are so huge. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Anyway, if you're nostalgic and you want to run OpenVMS on something that looks like a terminal. Or OpenVMs. Or OpenVMs. Or Terraform. <laughs> Terraform from your Apple IIe, but not really. Check out Cool Old Term. We'll link to it on GitHub. Before we get to all of the conference announcements for this episode, we wanted to point out we are doing a contest with the fine folks at O'Reilly again for Velocity New York. Velocity New York is September 15th through the 17th in, of course, New York. And we have a free two-day pass to Velocity New York that we are going to be giving away. And what we will be doing is we will put a link in the show notes to the five reasons to come to Velocity page and we want to know what the sixth reason is. So what we want you to do is tweet the ship show podcast with the sixth reason to come to velocity your sixth reason make sure you tag it with hashtag velocity comp we will take all of those tweets received by friday august 22nd at 11:59 p.m pacific time we'll take all of those tweets we will put them uh in a randomizer and we will pick a special recipient to get a free pass to velocity new york so get those tweets in as soon as possible. Uh, make sure you tag them with VelocityConf and uh, make sure you tweet the ship show. So a number of conferences coming up. I wanted to give a shout out to the folks organizing DevOps Days Toronto. Uh, yelled at us on Twitter, and rightly so, because we did not mention that DevOps Days Toronto is coming up. We'll put a link to the page there in the show notes. Also got a shout out from DevOps Days Tel Aviv. They are putting stuff together for their first DevOps Days event there. And then, of course, Belgium, Berlin, Boston, Chicago, Vancouver, and Warsaw are also in the upcoming list. I wonder if New York is supposed to be happening around Velocity, which I actually reminds me, FlowCon is coming up, PuppetConf is coming up, we will actually be at PuppetConf, um, so say hi if you are there. Uh, Velocity New York is coming up, I will be speaking there, and then uh, oh, Atlassian Summit, I will also be speaking there if you happen to be using Atlassian fun stuff, and uh, also uh, in October, the DevOps Enterprise Conference will be happening, that's Gene Kim's uh, new conference, that'll be interesting to see what the enterprise is thinking about DevOps, uh, especially given the discussion we just had with Kevin and Jade. Also, I uh, wanted to mention the uh, diversity tickets for FlowCon, PuppetConf, and Velocity are still going on. We've actually, we will link to the diversity page in the show notes. We've actually changed it. It is now Google Form, which is a little easier than email, um, but there are deadlines associated with that. Just fill out the form. If you're underrepresented in tech, let us know why you'd like to go to one of those conferences, and um, we will see if we can help you out with that. So be sure and check out that page because those dates are quickly approaching. So, from New York, this is Paul Reed signing off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. From Seattle, this is Seth signing off. From Minneapolis, Sasha. And we will see you in a couple of weeks. Bye. Bye.